Well, good morning again. You could uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, if you would like. We're going to look at verses 14 to 17 this morning. But in our study of Matthew, one of the things that stands out is that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew's been called the the Jewish gospel. It was written to show Israel that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was their Messiah. And more than any other gospel, Matthew expects his readers to know the Old Testament. Time and time again, Matthew has pointed us to an Old Testament text and said that Jesus fulfills this prophecy. Matthew wants us to see who Jesus is from the Old Testament prophecies written about him. He is the son of David. He is the true king of Israel. He's the righteous branch, the one who will reign over Israel and over the world in righteousness. He's the son of Abraham, the promised seed of Adam who would conquer the serpent, who would undo the effects of the fall and who would restore creation to its original state. And we've seen that he's a new Moses figure who's going to bring in the new covenant. And as such, Jesus is the one who forgives sins. Matthew has presented Jesus as God the Son. God the Son became man and took upon himself a fully human nature so that he came to earth as both God and man. And Matthew has shown us that Jesus by, he's shown us Jesus by connecting the prophecies in the Old Testament and showing us that he is the one who was prophesied about. In the first four chapters of introduction and the the story of Jesus' conception made those connections for us. Jesus came teaching and preaching with the authority of God. Unlike Moses and the prophets, Jesus doesn't say, thus says Yahweh. Jesus says, I say to you. And he said that he would be the judge. That he is the one who will decide who will be in the kingdom of heaven and who will be out. Jesus says that hearing and obeying his words is what will determine our eternal destiny. Who will enter the kingdom based on allegiance to him? That's what Jesus has been showing us. He has the authority to decide our eternal destiny. Jesus came then with the authority of God. But Jesus didn't come with authority in teaching and preaching only, his authority was also shown in his mighty deeds, in the, in the great things that he did. If someone comes claiming to be God and, and seeking, uh, speaking highly of themselves, telling you that they're going to judge the world, I, th- I think we do well to be skeptical about such a person. But if they come in the perfect fulfillment of scripture, and if their words are backed up by doing the works that only God can do, then that's something else. And that's what we see with the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled prophecy. He spoke as only God could speak. And he did what only God could do. A few weeks ago in Matthew 8, 1-4, we saw Jesus heal a leper with a touch. And the leprosy left the man and the man was cleansed. Last week, we saw Jesus heal the centurion serpent. And the servant was healed with only a word and from a distance. And so Jesus spoke the word and and didn't even see the servant. and, And that man was healed immediately. And through that, we saw his authority. And today, we're going to look at a third miracle or the third miracle in this set of three. And once again, we'll see Jesus's authority over sickness But this time, Matthew ties it in and and really ties all of it in with prophecy. And what we'll see is the reason why Jesus has authority over sickness. And so one of the things we're going to see this morning is why Jesus can heal the way that he could. Why he has authority over sickness. And what we'll see is that Jesus has authority over sickness because he is, because of who he is and because of his purpose and mission. Jesus is the one who will undo sickness and death and all of the results of the fall of man into sin. And so let's get into it right away here. If you haven't already, open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 14. 
says this. It says, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And what we'll see then in this text is, is three facets of Jesus' healing ministry. Three facets of Jesus' healing ministry. And first we'll see Jesus' healing touch in verses 14 and 15. Then we'll see the freeing word of Jesus in verse 16. Many who were oppressed by demons were brought to him and he cast out the demons. He cast out the spirits with a word. And he also healed all who were sick. And then third, we'll see the fulfilling of prophecy by Jesus in verse 17. That's a quote there from Isaiah 53. And we'll go to Isaiah 53 and we'll see how Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53. And all of this is meant once again to show us Jesus' power and authority. Matthew wants us to see Jesus for who he is. Jesus has authority over sickness and he has authority over demons and he is the servant of Isaiah 53, the servant of Yahweh. Another thing that we'll see here is Jesus' compassion once again. Most of the Pharisees and other religious leaders would not have touched Peter's mother-in-law on really on two accounts. They considered it unclean to touch somebody with a fever, and so they wouldn't have touched her. Plus, they had a, a low view of women, which was common in that culture. And so the three miracles that we've seen, the, the healing of the leper, the healing of the Gentile centurion slave, and the healing of Jesus' mother-in-law, show us that Jesus is willing to welcome all who will come to him, regardless of their social status. John MacArthur tells us in his commentary that the, the first thing many male Jews did every morning was to pray, Lord, I thank thee that I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And so that was kind of the common cultural view that those were the, the three worst things, a slave, a Gentile, and a woman. And yet that's exactly what we see Jesus healing and helping in his early ministry. Jesus welcomed all three. He's a compassionate Savior. And so we'll see His authority and we'll see His compassion once again. So let's look at our Lord and let's look at the first facet of His healing ministry in this passage. Number one, verses 14 and 15, we see the healing touch of Jesus. Again, the healing touch of Jesus. Now, I want to set the scene here by, by having you turn over to the book of Luke. And I want to just look at the parallel passage in Luke with you. So go to Luke chapter 4. Both Mark and Luke have this healing on a, on a Sabbath day, right after Jesus cast out a demon while teaching in the synagogue. And so we'll just read the account in Luke, starting at Luke 4 verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a, had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is, the, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports of him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, this is Simon Peter. And now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever or with a great fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve him. 
Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Now, I showed you this passage in Luke so that you could just kind of see the setting of this day. Jesus had cast out a demon in the, in the synagogue service and the report of it had spread really throughout the town. And that evening at sunset, when the Sabbath was considered over, they brought the sick and the demon possessed to be healed. And both Mark and Luke tell us that the demons recognized Jesus, but that he wouldn't allow them to speak. Now, Matthew, he's not as concerned about all of those details, and he's not as interested in telling a story for the story's sake like Luke and Mark seem to be. Matthew would rather us get our testimony of Jesus from Jesus himself and from Scripture than from demons. And so he doesn't even mention the fact that the demons recognized Jesus. And Matthew also just gives us very succinct descriptions of what had happened. Whenever you see a a story in in Mark or Luke, and then you compare the same version, Matthew always tightens it up. He gives a shorter version of the story. Matthew is very brief compared to Mark and Luke, and especially when when telling a a narrative story about an event or something that happens. And he he really, Matthew just gives us what we need to to make his point, just what we need to know so that he can make his point And his point again in this section is that Jesus has authority over sickness and even over demons. Matthew doesn't tell us about the synagogue service, about the Sabbath, or about the demons earlier that day, but he does tell us about Peter's mother-in-law. And so if we go back to Matthew and we go to chapter 8 and verse 14, it says, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Now, Peter had left his nets and his fishing business to follow Jesus, but he still has this house. He still seems to own this house, and it's a relatively big house as well. His mother-in-law lives with him. Mark tells us that the house, uh, it's the house of Simon and, and Peter, Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, and that James and John were there too. And so it's a, it seems to be a decently sized house. Now, Peter's mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever, and Luke called it, like we saw, a high fever or a, a great fever. And it was, it was great enough to keep her lying in bed. Now, normally in those days, people wouldn't, wouldn't lie in bed unless they were really too sick to go about their business. It's not like, like we were today where, you know, if, if you got a little bit of a cold, you can afford to just take a day off and, and, and lay around in bed for the day and kind of recover. Most people couldn't afford to do that. And so they would, they would, they, they would, um, they would continue to work if at all possible. And so she was very sick with a fever. But other than that, we don't really know much about the sickness. It could have been a flu, could have been malaria, could have been any number of sicknesses, but she's in bed with a fever. And Jesus saw her there lying sick with that fever. Now, this is the only time that we're going to see in Matthew where Jesus heals someone without being asked by the person. In this case, Jesus takes the initiative. And verse 15 tells us that he touched her hand And the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Jesus touched her hand, it says there. He he touched her hand, and and he, he touched her hand is actually at the center of these two verses. This is what they call a a chiastic structure. And I'm going to try to explain this as best as I can. A a chiasm repeats words or ideas, and and they kind of work up to a center point and then they work back down in a, in a parallel repetition pattern. And so it, it kind of builds up to the center and then returns the way it came. And so Jesus saw her lying sick with a fever and then he touched her and the fever left and she rose and began to serve him. And so he touched her is in the central place for emphasis. And on either side of he touched her, we see that there was a fever. 
And so on the one hand, she had a fever and then he touched her. And on the other side, the fever left. Now, before that, she was lying down and corresponding to that on the other side, she rose again. And so lying down, fever, there's the touch and then the fever, and then she got up. And so I I hope you can kind of see the pattern there and the emphasis there. And the chiasmus starts there with Jesus seeing her, and it ends with she served him. Now, the structure emphasizes the complete reversal of the situation that Jesus caused. You see that? There's a, there's a complete reversal of the situation, and the cause of the reversal was the touch of the Lord Jesus Christ. With the touch of his hand, the fever was gone, and Peter's mother-in-law was completely healed. And she got up and began to serve. Now, what does that show that she got up and began to serve? She felt completely better. Her strength was fully restored. It's an instantaneous and complete healing, a a full reversal of the situation. And I want to point out that that's the way that all biblical healing works. Healing in the Bible, divine healing, when God heals, it's always a complete healing. There's a, a reversal and a removal of the sickness and there's a restoration of health. And it's always instantaneous too, or at least almost always when we see a healing that that God has accomplished, it's an instantaneous healing. Now that's important to keep in mind because what what we hear of today in regards to so-called healers is, is not what we see in Jesus and not what we see in the apostles. You know, the Jesus doesn't have an emotional healing service where he invites everyone to come and sing and kind of work up a thing. You know, there's no emotion. There's no show. There's just a touch, complete healing, and it's done. Now, if the biblical gift, and I I just want to kind of go here a little bit. Actually, a couple people asked me about this last week, but um, if the biblical gift of healing were happening today, the way that it happened with Jesus and the apostles, it would happen in the same way that we see with Jesus and the apostles. And in fact, when Capernaum heard about the healing and they heard about the Sabbath service, the whole town came to be healed. And so that's, that's kind of, that's what we see in, in miracle stories in, in scripture. That's the kind of healing that's biblical healing, complete, full, instantaneous restoration of health. And we'll see that again as we kind of move on here. And, and, and I just want to kind of have that in your mind as we go here. The, the second facet of Jesus' healing ministry in this passage is number two, we see the freeing word of Jesus. And so the, the touch of Jesus, the healing touch of Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And now we'll see the word of Jesus and what it accomplishes in verse 16. Look at verse 16 there. It says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And so here we see the town of Capernaum and the surrounding area bring people to Jesus for him to cure them. Mark tells us that the whole city was gathered together at the door. Mark 1.33, the whole city gathered together at the door. Now Matthew's focus isn't so much on the crowd as on what Jesus actually did. It says there that, that they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. <clears throat> they brought many, whoever they were, the, the town, the people that had heard these reports about Jesus, they brought many who were oppressed by demons. <clears throat> Other translations say demon-possessed people. Many demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. Now, sometimes in Scripture, demons are the cause of certain sicknesses, and when the demons are cast out, the sickness or the conditions that the people had disappear as well. Now, Matthew doesn't go into a lot of detail, but we can kind of assume that that some of those sicknesses were probably those kind where the demon is cast out and the people are cured at the same time as well. We'll see some of those kind of stories later on in Matthew. But here, all we know is that many demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus that night. 
Now, if you think about that scene with the whole town of people at the door of the house and many demon-possessed people around, that is quite a, that's quite a, a get-together. That's quite a gathering. That, that might be even a little bit scary for some of us to be at some kind of a gathering like that with a bunch of demon-possessed people. We're going to meet a, a couple of demon-possessed people a little bit later, I think in chapter 9, um, who are, are so fierce and vicious that nobody could even cross that way. And so this would have been quite a night. Again, Luke and, and Mark note that the demons talked to Jesus and, and knew him as the Holy One of God, but Jesus wouldn't let them speak. And so we have many demon-possessed people around, and, and they're around the house after dark, or at least in the evening, and Jesus casts them out with a word. And so imagine the, the commotion of it all. In most cases, people who were possessed by demons would be, I, I don't even know what to say, interesting characters to, you know, to say the least. Um, demon possessed people, probably a little bit of, of, of a different kind of a person. And Jesus casts out the demons with a word. There's no elaborate incantations, no ceremonies, no emotion like we read about in, in similar kind of casting out demon things in those days. Just a simple word and the demons were cast out. And so Jesus's authority is even over demons. And this is important for us. Jesus's authority is over Satan and demons. He tells them what to do and they obey him. Now that's amazing that he tells them what to do and they obey. Demons listen to and obey Jesus Christ. And that's amazing, especially when we consider the fact that they don't do it willingly. Demons are fallen angels. They're in rebellion against God. Typically when they're called evil spirits or unclean spirits, but they listen to Jesus then, not because they want to, but because they have to. They obey Jesus because he makes them obey. He compels them to obey him. And this reminds me of the book of Job in chapters 1 and chapters 2. And I want you to go and find the book of Job. And, uh, and we'll look at this a little bit in the book of Job right before the book of uh, Psalms after Nehemiah, Esther. <clears throat> book of Job chapter 1. Remember there, Job chapter 1 and, and the Lord Yahweh... God, he, he points out Job to Satan. There's a, a day when the, the, the angels seem to be gathered in the Lord's presence and Satan comes to and God points out to Satan his servant Job. And in verse nine, Satan replies with this. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so what we see here is that God had been protecting Job from Satan. And there was a, a hedge around Job and everything that he did. And Satan knew about that hedge. Satan knew about that protection. And in this case, God granted now Satan permission to touch all that he has, verse 11. But he also, he set a boundary. Look at verse 12 again. And the Lord said to him, or said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Now, later in chapter two, after Satan destroyed everything that Job had, after Satan really took the full permission that God had gave him to come after Job, Satan destroyed everything that Job had. Satan asked permission now to stretch out his hand against Job's health. And we see that in chapter two and verse three. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. 
Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Now I want you to notice two things here. First note that that the Lord, that Yahweh takes responsibility here for Satan's evil actions. He says in verse 3, you incited me against him, against Job. So the Lord says, I did it in a sense. I did it. You incited me against him. And so whatever the, the devil does, he does under God's control and permission. So much so that God will even say that he himself did it. Second, now, of course, we have to say with that, I, I should say that, that God never claims to be evil or do that thing. What, whatever God does or whatever God accomplishes through the devil, God does it in perfect holiness and righteousness. And I'm not going to be able to, to parse that out here today. But, but notice that, that God's not afraid to say that, that I did it, that I was involved when he allows Satan to do something. But second, notice again that the Lord puts limits on what Satan can do. He says, only spare his life. He's in your hand, but spare his life. I've heard Steve Lawson say something like, the devil is the Lord's devil. And I think that is true. And I think we see that in Job chapter 1 and and chapter 2. The devil is God's devil. And God is in control. And just as the Lord commands Satan or permits him to destroy or prevents him from destroying, so in the same way Jesus commands demons and they come out, they obey him. And so we see here that just as God is in control of the devil, so the Lord Jesus Christ is in control of the devil. Now, I want you to go now to Acts chapter 19, and I want to illustrate this from Acts 19, and I I, I want you to see here what could have happened if Jesus didn't have the authority to cast out demons. If Jesus wasn't over the demons, what could have happened? What could they have done to him? And I think Acts 19.11 really illustrates this well. We also see here, uh, the miracles and the, the healing power that, that God worked through the Apostle Paul. And we'll come through that, back to that as well. So look at Acts 19, 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he had touched, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. The seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, or the man in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now that's an illustration of what a a demon-possessed man could do if you don't have the authority to cast them out. And so this demon-possessed, evil spirit-possessed man took on the seven sons of Siva and mastered them all and overpowered them so that they left the house naked and wounded. And what we see then is that both God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ have authority over demons. Now that maybe brings up a question as far as what do do we do with this? Should we be casting out demons? Should we be casting out demons? Jesus and the apostles, they did it from time to time. But there's no commandments that I know of to do so in the, in the New Testament. The church is told to make disciples, not necessarily to cast out demons. And I would say that perhaps there would be a time to do so, but our focus is more to be on proclaiming the gospel to somebody. 
And if somebody accepts the gospel and is truly born again, the Holy Spirit comes and, and dwells in them. And where the Holy Spirit dwells, we know that no demon can dwell. So casting out demons may, you know, I, I, I think it seems spiritual and I think it seems exciting, right? Whoa, I cast out demons and they were talking to me and how cool was that? And um, we kind of hear stories like that every once in a while. But what good does it do, if you think about it, what good does it do to the person if they don't get the gospel, if they're not saved, if they're not born again? And so that really needs to be our focus, to get the gospel to people. We're commanded to preach the gospel, but not necessarily, again, to cast out demons. And so just kind of my, my random thoughts here as we, we look at this passage. Matthew 8.16, let's go, let's go back and look at it again. It says, that evening... They brought to him many who were oppressed or possessed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. A word was all Jesus needed to cast out demons. And he also healed all who were sick. Notice that again, all of them, all of the people who were sick. Now, as we kind of think about, again, Jesus and the apostles and the healings, I want to say a word about the modern charismatic movement. You see, again, when Jesus and the apostles healed, they healed all the people and they healed them all the way. When somebody had a a spiritual gift of healing, they healed people completely, fully, and undeniably. And we just saw it there with the apostle Paul. Even the, the napkins that he touched, even the tissues that he touched, were used to heal people and cast out demons. And so there was a, an amazing uh, healing that was going on through Jesus and through his apostles. But people were completely, fully, and undeniably healed. And even whole cities and whole areas were emptied of sick people so that all the people were healed. Now we don't see healing like that throughout church history. From the days of the apostles until now, we have never seen healings like that recorded in church history. No one in church history claimed to do miracles like that from the days of the apostles. At least nobody credible claimed to do miracles from the days of the apostles until about 1901. Now, there was a few kind of crazy, unorthodox people that claimed to do miracles and claimed to prophesy, but... but but their doctrine kind of revealed them for who they were. But throughout church history, from, from the, 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 just shortly after the, the apostles, 100 AD until 1901, nobody claimed to do miracles or healing or to be an apostle through all of church history. Nobody credible. Now, something changed in 1901. And today, and, and for the last hundred years, there are people who claim to have the gift of healing. But when we look at it and we think about it and we examine it, it's nothing like the gift of healing that we see in Jesus and his apostles. So if somebody asks me for the, give me the simplest reason why you're not a charismatic pastor, Mike. Give me a reason why you believe that the gifts have ceased. Why I don't believe the supernatural spiritual gifts are still in operation. And the reason that I believe that they have ceased is because the biblical gifts have ceased. When you, when you look at, for the biblical gifts and you look around at what's happening in the world today, you recognize that those gifts have ceased. The Holy Spirit who gave those gifts gave them, according to Hebrews 2.4, according to His will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 also says the similar thing that it was, it was by the will of the Holy Spirit that those supernatural gifts were given. And according to the will of the Holy Spirit, it seems that He has stopped giving those gifts. And those gifts, and I should say this, those gifts were never dependent on faith. They were given by the Holy Spirit. And even the gift of faith is a gift that is given by the Holy Spirit. And so it's not like for the, for 1900 years of church history, people were thwarting the Holy Spirit by lack of faith. The, the Holy Spirit, if he wanted to do miracles of healing and prophecy, he could do them. He is not thwarted by men. 
But those gifts have ceased really all through church history, and even today we don't see them in the biblical manner that they were. Now, I don't know about you, but I only want spiritual gifts that are biblical. I don't want any unbiblical things happening. And if they were happening today, nobody would be able to cover it up. If, if, the, if, 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 you know, if somebody in the town of Lacrete had the gift of healing, the town of Lacrete would be healed and we would all hear about it in about, probably about five minutes or, or probably about the same amount of speed that word went around Capernaum. I kind of think it goes around Lacrete. And so we would, nobody would be able to cover it up. If it was happening anywhere in the world, we would hear about those gifts. And so because we look at the biblical gifts and we see what they are, we look at what's happening today, we don't see it. That's the, that's the reason why I am not a charismatic. That's why I believe that those gifts have ceased. And we could do the same with prophecy. We could do the same with miracles. We could do the same with the gift of tongue. Look at the biblical, see what it is, define it biblically, look at what's going on today, and we just don't see those gifts. We don't see that happening. It was a special thing for Jesus and the apostles to authenticate the word of God that we have now. So we've seen the healing touch of Jesus. We've seen the freeing word of Jesus. And I hope that encourages you that Jesus is over the, the demonic, that he has authority over them, um, that he has authority over the devil, that even the Lord himself tells the devil what he can do and what he cannot do. And the devil is constrained to obey whether he like it or not. Thirdly, then, let's see the fulfilling of prophecy by Jesus. And we see this in verse 17. The fulfilling of prophecy by Jesus. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew says, this was to fulfill and it's, it's more literally just so that the word of Isaiah might be fulfilled. So that the word of Isaiah, which he spoke, might be fulfilled. And we immediately wonder, what, what is so that the word might be fulfilled? What, what is it particularly that Matthew is, has in mind here that was, that was done to fulfill what Isaiah spoke? And I think we could easily say that all of the miraculous healings from, from ch- in chapter 8, from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to verse 16, would fit with what, I, with, with what Matthew has in mind. Matthew says these, these miracles were to fulfill the words spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Jesus was purposing to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah. And he was fulfilling what was spoken through Isaiah. Now, this creates a, a slight interpretive problem, and, and we need to really think about this a little bit. The quote that Matthew uses is from Isaiah 53, verse 4. And so here's the ESV translation of Isaiah 53, 4. And, and, and you might want to kind of put your, your marker in, in Matthew. And I want you to go to the book of Isaiah. We'll come back to Matthew and see it, but I want you to go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and we, we'll just start looking in verse 4. We'll, we'll kind of look at some more of the context, but Isaiah 53 and verse 4, ESV translation says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, Matthew only quoted the first half of the verse, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But you might notice a difference between Matthew's version and Isaiah's. If you have both of them in front of you, Matthew said, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So Matthew has illnesses, or depending on your translation, infirmities, Isaiah has griefs. Matthew has diseases. Isaiah has sorrows or pains, depending on your translation. And so what's going on here? Why the difference? A good place to start is to notice that the word translated griefs in Isaiah 53, 4 
is used on two other occasions in Isaiah 53. And, it, and also the word translated sorrow is used one other time. And so I want you to see this. Look at Isaiah 53 and verse 3. And we see those same words repeated there. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, that's that same word, and acquainted with grief. Again, that same word. Continuing that verse, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Then in verse four, again, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And then if you skip down to verse 10 of Isaiah 53, it says, yet it was the will of the father to crush him. He has put him to grief. And there's that same word again, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now we know that Isaiah 53 is speaking uh, about 700 years ahead of time, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word there translated grief in Isaiah 53 is, is actually the usually translated sickness. That's the, the meaning of that word. If you look up that word in a dictionary, you're going to find that that word means sickness. And the word translated sorrows is usually translated pain or sometimes by extension, suffering, pain and suffering. And so when we look at the two translations, Matthew's translation is actually the better translation. It's the more literal translation of Isaiah 53. And it's most likely that Matthew just made his own translation from the Hebrew text. And that brings up the question then, well, why did the translators of Isaiah 53 not translate verses 3 and 4 in the same way that Matthew did? And the answer, I think, is that the, the commentators, you know, the, uh, sorry, the commentators didn't spend much time talking about this, but the, the answer, I think, is that they were paying attention to the context of Isaiah 53 when they translated it. And in the context of Isaiah 53, the reason the servant bore griefs and sorrows is because throughout the context, he took our sins, our iniquities, and our transgressions upon himself. And again, we know that this refers to Jesus Christ and to his substitutionary atonement, that he died for our sins. And we know as we think about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that he wasn't sick and he wasn't diseased and he never took on sickness himself. There's no time in scripture that we find that he is sick, but what he did do was take on our sin. And so let me read again from Isaiah, and I want you to notice just the emphasis on sin, iniquity, and transgression. So starting at verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now at the end of verse 5, it talks about with his wounds we are healed. And that, that healing in verse 5 comes with his wounds. But his wounds came because of sin. And so the healing isn't speaking there in verse 5 about physical healing. It's about healing from sin because the Lord chastised Christ because of our sin, because he took on our iniquity, he was wounded, and therefore we are healed of our sin. Now verse 8, in the, look at verse 8 there in the second half of verse 8, that Christ was cut off out of the land of the living. In other words, he died. It says there, for the transgression of my people. He died, the Lord Jesus Christ died for sin. And he died for other people's sin. Not for his own sin, but because he took on other people's sin. 
And so seeing these connections, the translators of Isaiah 53, and I would say rightly, they translated sickness and pain less, less literally and more metaphorically. And so it's the sickness and pain in the context is actually speaking about grief and, and sorrow, not so much literal sickness. And we could go back then and kind of flip this around and ask, well, was Matthew not paying attention to the context? Did, did, did Matthew translate this wrong? Why does he translate it the way that he does? And again, I would say no, Matthew translated it just fine. But, but here's what I believe Matthew is doing and what Matthew's trying to, to point us to here when he points us to Isaiah 53 and says, this was to fulfill what the Lord said or what, what, what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Matthew gives the more literal translation because he wants to connect Jesus with Isaiah 53. And pretty much every time Matthew says that something is fulfilled, what he means is, is not so much that what was predicted before has come to pass in a one-to-one way. Matthew knows that Isaiah 53 is speaking about Jesus taking on our sins and he's going to use Isaiah 53 later on in that gospel in, in that way. But instead, Matthew says something that something was fulfilled. He uses it more broadly to say that the thing predicted in the Old Testament context or the thing spoken about in the Old Testament context pointed to Christ. In other words, Matthew's saying, what you see here in Isaiah 53 is fulfilled and will be fulfilled in Christ. He's not saying that Isaiah 53 means that Christ will heal sicknesses, He's saying that Christ is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And I hope that you can see what I'm, I'm trying to articulate here. This is, this is a hard kind of concept for me to explain. But I, th- I think we could go even further and, and ask this. Why is there sickness in the world in the first place? Why is there sickness in the world? And the answer is that there's sickness in the world because of sin. So when the servant of Isaiah in Isaiah 53 deals with sin, when he goes like a lamb to the slaughter and verse 10, his soul makes an offering for guilt, he has dealt with the sins of his people. And if their sins are gone, if they've been forgiven, if their sins have been born and carried, then the cause of sickness has been dealt with too. And so we see in verse 11, and look at the Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And so Jesus makes us to be accounted as righteous. And because he is the righteous one, and because he bore our iniquities, he paid the wrath of God for our sins, And we get the blessing of God for His righteousness. And that's really the gospel in Isaiah 53, uh, you know, 700 years before Jesus came. The the righteous one, the, the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 53 died for the sins of His people so that they could be forgiven of their sins and so that we could have the righteousness that is His. He makes us accounted as righteous. That's justification by faith. Now, because of this great exchange, because we get Christ's righteousness and because he took on our sin, we will one day be resurrected from the dead and we will dwell with God forever in the new heaven and the new earth, where there will be no sickness or pain or death in that place. And so when sin is dealt with fully and finally, when it's removed from us, the consequences of sin will be removed as well. Sickness and death and pain will be removed. And what I'm getting to then is that what we see in Jesus' healings in Matthew chapter 8 is a foretaste or a preview of heaven. Matthew is saying what you see in Jesus' healings is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was speaking about. Because Jesus will bear our sins, he can also remove the consequences of our sins as well. And that's what Matthew is pointing to with his literal translation of Isaiah 43, or Isaiah 53, 4. So when we see the Lord Jesus healing entire villages, 
And when we see him casting out demons, what we're seeing then is a glimpse of the kingdom. We're seeing a glimpse of heaven. We're seeing a foretaste of heaven where there will be no sickness or sorrows or grief or death. And all of those things will be abolished because the Lord Jesus Christ killed sin by dying on the cross. Satan will be defeated. Temptation will be no more. And we see a preview of it in the earthly ministry of the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Jesus' message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what that meant was that the kingdom of heaven was, was on the brink. It was around the corner. It was, it was right there. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus' ministry. The, the message for us is very similar today. When Jesus returns, we will enter His kingdom if we have repented and believed the gospel. We don't know when He will return. He told us to be ready. He could come at any time. Our job is first to ensure that we've repented and believed the gospel. And then second, to wait patiently for Christ to return, to be ready when He comes. And waiting patiently for Christ's return doesn't mean doing nothing. Waiting means serving Him well. means looking forward to His kingdom. It means growing to be like Christ and seeking to glorify God in this world. And that's what we are called to do as we wait for the return of the King to bring this kingdom-like conditions in. So I hope this look at the healing ministry of our Lord has been an encouragement. We saw the healing touch of Jesus that He touched Peter's mother-in-law and her fever left her and she was immediately better and she rose to serve Him. We saw the freeing word of Jesus that He spoke a word and demon-possessed people were set free and He healed all who were sick. And we saw the fulfilling of prophecy by Jesus. He is the servant of Yahweh from Isaiah 53 who took on the sins of His people and therefore He overcame the consequences of sin as well. And in His ministry we see a foretaste of of our future inheritance where there will be no sin, no sickness, no death, no pain, no Satan. None of those things will be there. Only we will be with the righteous, dwelling with God forever and ever. And we see a a foretaste of that in the Lord Jesus' ministry on earth. We're going to sing now, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, All Our Sins, and griefs to bear. And that's exactly what He has done for us. He bore our sins. He took away our griefs. And one day, finally and fully, we will, we will enjoy the fullness of that, which we see in His ministry now. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this look at our Lord Jesus Christ and His power and authority. We thank You that, that You have power over demons. You have power over sickness. You have power really over all things, over nature, as we'll see later in this gospel. And we thank you for that power, Father. We thank you that we can come to you in prayer and that you bear our sins and griefs and really all of our burdens and trials, that you have promised to be with us in the midst of them and to help us to overcome anything that happens in our lives. And so we thank you for all of this. And we pray, Father, then that you would help us to to really pray this with all of our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.